Lucky Land Casino asking people what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? Lucky? In line at the deli, I guess? Aha, in my dentist's office. More than once, actually. Do I have to say? Yes, you do. In the car before my kids' PTA meeting. Really? Yes. Excuse me, what's the weirdest place you've gotten lucky? I never win and tell. Well, there you have it. You can get lucky anywhere, playing at LuckyLandSlots.com. Play for free right now. Are you feeling lucky? No purchase necessary. Void where prohibited by law. 18 plus. Terms and conditions apply. See website for details. Hi, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to the 268th episode of Awards Chatter, the Hollywood Reporter's Awards podcast. I'm the host, Scott Feinberg, and my guest today is a veteran singer, actor, writer, and director who is best known for his work as drag queen Lola in Harvey Firestein and Cyndi Lauper's Broadway blockbuster Kinky Boots, for which he won a Best Actor in a Musical Tony in 2013 and a Best Musical Theater Album Grammy in 2014, and as Houseball MC Pray Tell on Ryan Murphy's landmark and acclaimed FX drama series Pose, for which he was nominated for Best Actor in a Drama Series, Golden Globe, and Critics' Choice Awards in 2018, and will almost certainly be nominated in the same category at the Emmys in 2019, the incomparable Billy Porter. Over the course of our conversation at the offices of The Hollywood Reporter, the 49-year-old and I discuss how he was impacted by a terribly dark childhood, how in the early 1990s he first broke into and then, for complicated reasons, fell out of the Broadway scene, why, despite 13 subsequent years of struggle, including at times homelessness, bankruptcy, and despair, he remained committed to the arts, how, against all odds, Kinky Boots brought him in from the cold and Pose allowed him to realize his lifelong ambitions, plus much more. So without further ado, let's go to that conversation. Billy, thank you so much for joining us. Appreciate it. Thanks for having me. Of course, of course. We always begin with just a few basics. Where were you born and raised, and what did your folks do for a living? I was born and raised in Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania. My mother was disabled, so she did not work. And my father was a security guard. Mm-hmm. My father and my stepfather were both security really? guards, actually, yes. So I've read a lot of other interviews and profiles and things in preparation. It sounds like you first started singing at a very early age in a way, though, that probably many people do in church. That was the beginning. Yes. I grew up in the Baptist and the Pentecostal church, and I started singing in church. And that sort of sparked the interest from sort of outside energies. You know, I wasn't a sports person, but I could really, really sing. Mm-hmm. Like, it was like, oh, wait, this is something different. Maybe we should sort of help him nurture that. What was the earliest sort of indication from others that you were better than most? I would say probably in the fourth grade. Yeah. You know, my music teacher sent me to a choir director, all city junior choir, and was like, you need to do that. And she just (laughs) sent me over. It was a Saturday morning thing. I got on the bus and would go to this rehearsal and Bertie Nichols taught us how to read music and sing. And it was great. It was really wonderful. I think it was probably around that time June 6th, 1982 was an important date because that was the date of the 36th Tony Awards. So oh, yeah. <laughs> why was that important? You have done your research. <laughs> I had been sort of bused to a middle school during desegregation. It was 79, 80, 1980 around. And Risenstein Middle School had these after-school programs 
We used to have after-school programs in public schools. Remember those <laughs> days? And it was a stack, like a huge stack of like hundreds and hundreds of after-school programs that you could choose from. And musical theater, Risenstein Musical Theater was one of them. I saw the word musical. I thought, oh, maybe I could sing. They explained to us what a musical was. We came back and auditioned the next week. They cast Babes in Arms, Rogers and Hart Babes in Arms. Everybody was double cast except me. And it was like, oh, what does that mean? Like, does that mean I'm good at this? But I had never done it before, so I right. did it. It was fun, you know, kept me busy, kept me out of trouble, made lots of great friends, got to sing and dance and act and blah, blah, blah. It didn't register to me that this was something that people did for a living. Right. And that summer, I was uh, washing dishes in my kitchen mm -hmm. and the Tony Awards came on and it was the year that Dreamgirls was up for the Tony. And all of a sudden I saw all these black people on television and, you know, they were in beautiful costumes and the ladies were in Vegas showgirl dresses. And all of a sudden Jennifer Holliday started singing. And I'm telling you, I'm not going. And it was like they were on a stage, sort of like we had been on a stage. And, you know, but they were glamorous. And it was the first time I had sort of seen black people not be slaves or not be in the gutter or not be poor. You know, like it was just there were a lot of things going on at the same time in that moment. And then here was Jennifer Holliday, who sort of had this gospel singing voice like I had. And she was at the front and she won the Tony. And I thought, oh, that was really a huge transformative moment for me, just in terms of understanding that I could dream beyond my circumstance. Yeah. You have said in other interviews that I think you knew yourself from a very early age that you were gay. But did people around you know that? And if they did, did that affect the way you were treated growing up? Yes, absolutely. I don't know that they knew the language for it or that they were capable of even uttering the words. But I grew up in a very religious space. And, you know, I was different. My family sent me to a psychologist at five after kindergarten. Every Wednesday, I went at five or six. It was either five or six. Maybe I was six. Maybe I was six. Yeah. It was like first grade. And what was the sort of a gay conversion therapy no, objective? No, it wasn't gay conversion therapy. Let's yeah. be clear about yeah, yeah, that. Yeah. It wasn't gay conversion therapy. Yeah. It was a bunch of women nervous about a boy who wanted to play with dolls, about a boy who was sort of presenting as an effeminate mm -hmm. thing. They didn't know what to do with that. You know, their Bible told them that that was wrong if that continued. So they just wanted to talk about it. It wasn't somebody trying to make me, it wasn't that. Yeah. It was literally just a inquiry into like, how can we fix this? Mm -hmm. You know, so then the messaging was, I needed to be fixed. Something was wrong with me, I needed to be fixed. So yeah, <laughs> unfortunately, yes. <laughs> how does that affect a kid? It's very difficult to understand in any sort of form. You know, I say from the time I could comprehend thoughts and ideas, the messaging was something's wrong with you and you need to be fixed. So that became my plan. I wanted to be fixed so that I could be good and everybody would like me and people would stop being afraid of me. Like it was weird. It was just a weird thing. I didn't know what to do. I didn't really. To whatever extent you're okay with discussing this part, just because we go through a whole life and it's sort of how somebody becomes who they are. Yeah. I know that last year, last October, in the midst of the Brett Kavanaugh hearings, you did a very brave thing and I think for the first time wrote about a further 
dark aspect of your childhood that stemmed from that, I guess, yeah. where you felt that because people were aware of the fact that you were gay at an early age, that was then preyed upon by somebody in your own home. Yeah. So that psychologist essentially, after the sort of year every Wednesday meetings, and it was very innocent. It, it, you know, he would just ask me questions and I would, you know, whatever. And I overheard him talking to my mother that she, you know, I'm fine. Oh, he's fine. You just need to get a man around the house, teach him to be more of a man. That's what I took away from that. That's what my six-year-old self heard, mm -hmm. right? So then at seven, when my mother had met and married who would become my stepfather, when he came into my room and started fiddling with me, I thought that was my man lessons. Like, oh, okay, well, this is what I'm supposed to, you know, and, and it was, I mean, this leaving Neverland thing really has like triggered so many of those images and that stuff back up. And, you know, I've spoken about it a long time. For a long time, I've written a play about it. You know, I've been working through it creatively in public for years. Mm -hmm. So it's not new information to a lot of people. Mm -hmm. You know, because I really feel like me coming out on the other side of this in some way. I'm still crazy, but like I've been able to fend off fully insane asylum crazy. Um, <laughs> you know, I, I've been able to really work through it. And as an artist, I feel like a part of my point on this planet is to use my gifts and my talents and my art to sort of talk about it and open up a conversation about it and try to help other people heal in the way that I've been healing through the years. So yeah, it was the highest and darkest form of trauma. I think that like a person can have, and I look back at it sometimes and it's really like the pros and the cons, right? I've spoken about it. I wrote a play called While I Yet Live mm -hmm. that was off Broadway 2014. And I remember having a conversation, a talk back. And I said it for the first time, which was the sexual abuse and subsequently the response from the adults around me or lack thereof was the best thing that could have ever happened to me. Because at a very early age, I understood that there was not one single adult around me who was equipped with the tools to do the thing that they were supposed to be doing. So I had to do it for myself. I could see through the hypocrisy of the doctrines of religion. I could see it really, really early. It was like, wait a minute, <laughs> something's not right here. And I have to extract myself from it so I can save myself. And really what you, from what I've been able to gather, at a certain point, you made your mother aware of what had gone on. Yeah. She brings, I don't think it was at your request at all, but she brings you and your stepfather face to face to talk about <laughs> you it. You really did your research. I'm trying, I'm trying. <laughs> but but only because that was the most amazing thing to read from that was that you have this awkward conversation. I guess he sort of denies it or mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. And you're out of there within a month. Yeah, I was 17. I had gotten into Carnegie Mellon University. I was going to college. I was working at Kennywood Park that summer. This was sort of spring. And I was like, listen, I'm out of here anyway. Mm -hmm. We don't ever have to see each other again. Like, I understood that idea so early. And when I look at it, it's really sad. And it's really, you know, I'm getting in this space of sort of trying to embrace my younger 
self because there was no childhood for me. You know, I didn't have a childhood. Now I'm in a relationship. Now I have a husband. Now I'm like going through all this stuff because there's another person in the room now. I fixed myself. I figured out how to make my way through the world. Mm -hmm. But now there's another person in the room. So all this other stuff is coming up now, you know, and all these tools that I don't actually have. I have tools that know how to protect myself. And, I, I have those tools. And discipline in the sense that, so Carnegie Mellon, which is a great school, especially for people that want to pursue drama. We've had Judith Light and mm -hmm. Ted Danson and a whole mm -hmm. bunch of people that have done this podcast have talked yeah, about yeah. it really shaped them a lot. Yes. But it's like 15 minutes from the home where you grew up. Mm -hmm. How often did you go back? Never. Right. It was like a 15 minute drive from my house and I would see my family like every other college student on holidays. Mm -hmm. But that was indicative of the work. That was indicative of the class load. Right. Like, I just really, really couldn't. It was convenient right. that I couldn't. It was convenient that I could blame it on the work, right. but I wasn't lying right, right. when I was blaming it on, on the work. And in a way, I don't know exactly chronologically when this happened, but in a way, the thing that was keeping you probably most of all from going home went away rather suddenly, right? Yeah, he died my sophomore year of college, mm -hmm. and he died suddenly of a heart attack, and all of a sudden, that was over. Yeah. Not really, but like, you know, I still think about it, I'm still in therapy about it. It's like, I don't know what's worse. If the abuser stays living, <laughs> and you have to sort of like, work through that stuff in person, or if he dies. Mm-hmm. So you came and you dumped your shit on me mm -hmm. and then you disappeared. So now we're just left with like, ah. Right, what do you make of that? What do you, <laughs> you do with like, that? What are we supposed to do with that? Like, you know, and I realized that my whole existence as a human being and as an artist and as an activist and as all the things that I have sort of become go back to that all the time like it always does <laughs> do you think it was in some ways a motivating driver to become all those things to almost like look what i can do in spite of what you did to me i don't know that it was sort of as self-aware as that what i do know is that the rejection from the doctrines of religion and the church sort of pushed me out I chose myself, so I knew that I had to sort of walk away from that. Mm -hmm. You know, when you're in the middle of a trauma like that, the focus has to be singular. The singular focus for me at that time in my life was getting out. Get right. out of here. Just get out. And that's what Carnegie was. That's what Carnegie was. That's what Broadway was. Mm -hmm. That's what that thing was. Just get me out. Right. And then I'll figure out the rest after that. Were you immediately a standout at Carnegie, where now for the first time, you're probably surrounded by a lot of other extremely talented people as well. Yeah, I was a standout, but that was then another, you know, Carnegie Mellon became another landmine, you know, another sort of a toxic, homophobic. Were you out at Carnegie? Yeah, I came out at 15. Okay. So this is the 80s. Okay. You know, AIDS is here. We're coming of age. We're trying to sort of figure ourselves out. We're at college and our business and the arts and all of that. You know, we like to masquerade as being inclusive and we've come a long way. But the reality is we're not all that inclusive. We're not. We are when it's convenient, but we just aren't.
in my experience. I'm only speaking from my experience. And so the homophobia of like, okay, so you have to change yourself to work in this business mm -hmm. started sort of coming into the conversation that way. It's like, oh, you know, you have to be who you are. You have to be authentic. That's the only way you can be a great actor. And then in the next breath to all the gay boys in the room, it was like, mm, y'all got to butch up though. Ran it in. Yeah. Y'all got to butch up. Yeah. So there was a 20 year plus journey for me sort of dealing with these juxtapositions, dealing with the truth of it. Mm -hmm. They weren't lying. <laughs> you know, it's like it was 1987. Black men had James Earl Jones mm -hmm. as the patriarch leading man. We had Denzel Washington as the sex symbol leading man. And we had Eddie Murphy as the genius clown. Those were the three types that we could play. And they were all straight. Right. So you, even before completing your MFA in 91, you were already coming out to New York. What yeah. was that about? And what were your impressions of the place? Maybe you got your first taste of Broadway then. What was that all about? Well, once again, the whole intention was to get out. So I wasn't getting booked in the summer stock you know, because when you're in school, it's like you can work in the summer, you can do summer theater, blah, 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 blah. So I would audition for the summer theaters that were coming out of Pittsburgh, and I wasn't getting the jobs. Mm -hmm. And so I thought, well, if I'm going to work at McDonald's, I can work at McDonald's in New York. Right, right. <laughs> and learn the subway system. Right. And go to auditions and just get myself prepared and get that city prepared for when I'm there for good. You know, like I was that kid. And so that's sort of what happened, right? Yeah, and so I started going out there my sophomore year, my so yeah, I started going there my sophomore year in the summers and I would go there and I would book summer stock and then go to different places from New York. So like New York, New Jersey, my best friend lived in New Jersey, uh, Montclair, New Jersey. So we would stay at his house and that was our home base and we would go to different, you know, so yeah. And I learned the city and I got the energy and, you know, and it was just awesome. It was great to sort of like be in this dream place that I had always thought of. I think it's worth pointing out that this is... I believe, like late 80s that we're talking about, which yeah. I think is roughly the same time in which Pose is set. Yes. And you're coming out there, not unlike Ricky and Damon and yes. these guys from the yes. show, yep. coming into the same circumstances yes. and having the same considerations all around you, whether it's, again, AIDS or gang violence or all the different things that a young black gay person let alone the, the, the trans community that was, mm -hmm. I don't know how aware of them you even were at that mm -hmm. point when you're coming out. But so this is what you're facing. How, as somebody who had not spent all that much time in New York prior to what I'm about to say, how did you then wind up booking your first Broadway show, which was not just anyone, but <laughs> Miss Saigon, which was one of the biggest phenomena <laughs> of the century? I say it and I tell it to everybody who I talk to who asks me the questions. I went to the audition. <laughs> That's a good way. You have to go to the audition. Right. People ask me all the time. They're like, well, how did you think? I went to the audition. Right. I picked up Backstage Magazine. I circled every audition that I wanted to go to, even the ones that I wasn't right for. Right. And I stood in line and I went to every audition there was. Right. That's what you do. <laughs> Nothing is handed to you. Right. I was getting Backstage Magazine, which was the trade magazine. 
is the trade magazine, mm-hmm. where you would get all of the auditions. I was getting that at my house in when I was 15 in Pittsburgh. Pittsburgh yeah. I was getting a subscription to that magazine at my house. You stand in line. Mm-hmm. And you go to the audition. You sing your eight bars because it was eight bars because there were a thousand people there. Right. I was one of two people that got called back that day. I came back the following week. I guess it was January 1980. Well, the show was 91, so that must have been maybe 90. January 1989. I had gone to New York because I was making connections. Mm -hmm. So I had booked an off-Broadway show at the Public Theater, New York Shakespeare Festival, Joseph Papp's Theater. Yeah. During the Christmas break of my junior year, so I think that's 89. It was supposed to go to Broadway. Once again, I was trying to get out any way I could get out. You know, because I would leave school to do a Broadway show. This show tanked. It opened like the end of December. It tanked. So I was on my way back to school. Mm -hmm. I had two weeks in New York and I was just hanging out. Backstage Magazine, open call, Miss Saigon. We all knew where it was coming. You know, we had late Miz, we had had Phantom. Everybody was prepared. We all had our songs. We all, you know. So I went to the open call, and it was like the day before I went back to school. So I went to the open call, sang, got on a plane, came back to school. Got a call that week. They want to see you again. I was like, oh, okay. (laughs) One of two people. Call back, flew back the next week, did an audition in front of a bunch of people. Then... I didn't hear anything for a really long time. There was like the whole controversy with like bringing Jonathan Price mm-hmm. over and he wasn't Asian and ga 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 and Cameron McIntosh canceled the show and all of this stuff because I was supposed to have a final call. And, and then all of a sudden it sort of all worked out. It was like, it was back on and the final callback happened and it was, Fall of 90, yes. And flew up for the final callback, and I booked it. And the second semester of my senior year was an internship doing Saigon on Broadway. So you were able to count it as credit for yes. school. Oh, yes. that's awesome. Yes, that was always my plan. Do you remember how you celebrated getting that part? That's got to be the biggest day of your life up to that point. <laughs> I really don't remember because I was yeah. in the middle of class. Classes, I in, right. I was in the middle of classes, and I was just trying to finish up and graduate. Well, that was the beginning of Broadway for you. But meanwhile, you've had the craziest variety of a career because I think (laughs) it was after that, that you then go on Star Search. Yes, it was right then. So the first year of Saigon, I was in it and there was a man in the show, uh, Hinton Battle, who had won the Tony Award. He had connections to Star Search or something and he was talking about it in passing. And I had always wanted to be on Star Search because I wanted to be a recording artist. And that was the show, you know, that was the American Idol of the time. And he was like, oh, well, you know, just get me a DVD and I'll send it. I'm um, DVD. We didn't even have DVDs. <laughs> no, get me a, a, a tape, a yeah, yeah. VHS yeah. tape of you sing it and I'll send it in. And I had been doing AIDS benefits at that time at cabaret clubs. And so I had a few of those and I sent it and they called me and they were like, come. So I went on my vacation. Where was this in LA? LA. Yeah. On my vacation here in LA, Hollywood and Vine. First time out here? First time out here. We stayed at the Sportsman Lodge over the hill <laughs> in the valley. And it was one weekend, Friday, yeah. it was the end of the season. Friday, we filmed the last two episodes of the season, which I won both. I'm sorry, the last four shows of the season. Mm-hmm. So the first weekend, it was two shows on Friday, two shows on Sunday. I won all four and advanced to the semifinals and the finals, which were the following weekend. Right. And so I had a week in between. I stayed here for my vacation from Saigon. Right. And then 
Saturday I did the semifinals one, and then that night I did the finals and won. So you won Best Male Vocalist, and that's $100,000. Yes. Must have made a difference at that point, particularly. Mm, (laughs) No, because, I mean, yes and no, because, you know, it's like it was the end of the year, and so they didn't send you the check until the top of the year. Oh, okay. So it was like, so they could claim it. Right, right. And then they dated the check, though, for that past year. Right, right. So I got it in the new year and couldn't. Basically, I paid forty-two thousand dollars in taxes oh, on it. No. Oh, so, no. well, it was still great, still but great. like, but the bigger you know. value, I guess, was that you were now suddenly able to, you know, your profile was a lot higher, right? You're opening for Aretha there. Franklin. You're doing your that own. That was much later, later though. On. That was much later. The whole Star Search thing was good, but it wasn't until that was ninety-two. 92. It wasn't until four and a half years later with my own, once again, working and yeah, tenacity yeah. that the actual R&B album so came out. Together, right. In the interim, what happened was, I guess, after the Miss Saigon chapter ends, you finish, you graduate from Carnegie Mellon, you're back on Broadway as an understudy in Five Guys Named Mo. Yep. And then at 24, you are Teen Angel in the revival of Greece, yes. again on Broadway. Yes. And just to set the scene for my actual question people can go on youtube if they didn't see it at the time they can see you doing beauty school dropout on jay leno yep. and mm-hmm. just to get a sense of what a show-stopping thing this was <laughs> you've described it as quote singing as high and as loud as i could close quote basically blowing the roof off the joint and stopping the show every night and yet the thing that i have gathered from a lot of different interviews from then and since is that more with a little bit of passage of time, you were not particularly happy, even though one would look at that and assume this guy's breaking out and he's doing so well and to, you know, get your applause. You weren't really doing what you wanted to be doing. Mm -mm. I didn't know. I was just throwing everything against the wall and seeing what would stick. For me, I had a very interesting and specific skill set. For lack of a better description, I was a black boy man who sang like Jennifer Hudson. Like I could literally sing that high, that beautifully. Mm -hmm. Like I could sing like that when I was in my Mm twenties from the church, like all of that. Mm -hmm. And that was a new thing for Broadway. And I thought as an actor, a trained actor, uh, Shakespeare, you know, like in the classic Shakespeare, all of it, you know, that I could come and I could like play my trump card so I could get in the business and work. And then once I'm in, I could like, then swirl something around and right. change right, 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 change right. that. Right. You know, I was pigeonholed so quickly into the sort of sissy clown. Little shop of horrors you felt you know, was similar, similar situation. Yeah, just all of it. Yeah. It's like, come and stop our show, but we don't want to hear your story. And I was longing for the story to be told. You know, the at what cost. The part that people don't get to hear, you know, the shoulders of the people who I stand on, you know, who could headline a joint and yet not be able to walk in the front door. It's like we're repeating that again. And what most hammered this home was seeing another show that was on Broadway at the same time as Grease. Yes. 
Yeah, Angels in America. I, you know, my favorite play and one of my favorite playwrights. It was Angels in America, and there was buzz all around, and nobody had ever seen it before. And I took myself alone, and I sat to see part one, Millennium Approaches, and it was the first time that I had ever seen anybody black and gay and not the butt of the joke, but actually the moral and spiritual compass. And all the white people were swirling around him and he was the center going, "Mm -mm, calm down. You know, like it was so powerful to me. And I knew- This is Jeffrey Wright. This is Jeffrey Wright, yeah. yeah. And I knew that I had some decisions to make because here I am literally butted up, theaters butted up against each other. Here I am on the other stage with 14 inches of orange rubber hair on my head, glitter all over my face, a white space suit prancing around like a little Richard Automaton on crack. That's what I called it. (laughs) And didn't you at one point later also play Little Richard? I did play Little Richard in a, in a TV special. Boy, you do, y'all do y'all research up in this. Wow, yes. So, yes, I did play Little Richard years later. But, you know, I just knew that I needed to take the reins. If there was ever going to be a shift, it was going to happen because I knew what it needed to look like. Nobody was looking at me and seeing who I actually am. So at a time when, again, you would probably be the envy of a lot of people, your heart in a big show, you get your applause every night, whatever, you basically said, with the exception of just, I think you were a replacement after that in Smokey Joe's Cafe, but that was it mm-hmm. for a long time. Yeah. Because, not because you were no longer looking for parts, but you were very deliberately limiting the sorts of parts you would even consider. Right. And... It turned out, when I made the choice, it turned out exactly the way I thought it would. When I made the demand that people see me and receive me as a full human being, the work dried up, just like I knew it would. I was like, right, because y'all think I'm this. So what were some of the parts, because I've come across a few, some of the ones that you pursued that people were not receptive to you? I couldn't even pursue them. I couldn't even get in the room for which to ones? audition for things. And that's the thing that I talk about, about this moment in my life, this pose moment in my life, because it has taught me to dream the impossible. You know, Ryan Murphy has taught me how to dream the impossible. I've always had huge dreams, but they were always springboarded off of something that I had already seen. So why can't I be the first black Jean Valjean? Why can't I be the first black MC in Cabaret? Why can't I be the first black, you know, Freddie in Dirty Rotten Scoundrels? Why can't I be the first black this? Why can't I be the first Hedwig. black Hedwig? Yeah. Why can't I be the first black blah, blah, blah? Yeah, yeah. Always the first black something yeah. and never the first period. I wasn't dreaming as far as I could have, Mm -hmm. you know, and the disappointment of that was once again, I say, had I gotten the career that I felt I was entitled to have based on my talent and my skill set and my dedication and my work ethic and glad, 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 I never would be sitting here right now. Well, so at that time, in that moment, what were your representatives saying about you? What do you think other people in the business were saying? Because I think there was, for some people, this perception that Billy Porter's difficult, right? Because he's being picky and he's better than doing this, which 
is not incorrect. You did feel, and who's to say you were wrong, that you were better than what you were getting to pick from. But right. do you think that that in itself made it harder to get things that you wanted to get? It's really interesting because, wow, this is pretty deep. I actually <laughs> like you. You know, because people don't really ask these deep questions. Hello. This is really cool. Um, You know, I never would have become a writer. I never would have become a director. I never would have excavated my leadership, my creative leadership potential, had that turned out the way I thought it was supposed to. Had my R&B career taken off, I would not be here doing this specific thing mm -hmm. with so much, I, 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 here's the thing. Yeah. When you are a self-starter, right? I'm a self-starter. One of my mentors, George Wolf, said to me, don't wait for anybody to give you permission to practice your art. You should be practicing it always, all the time, mm -hmm. even when people aren't listening, and most of the time they won't be listening. Right. So here I am taking the initiative, mm -hmm. right, to go for what I want, mm -hmm. not for what outside energies and people think I should be wanting. I moved to Los Angeles. I go to graduate school at UCLA in the screenwriting program, professional program in screenwriting. I start directing. I start creating. I start creating the world that I want to see. And now all of a sudden I'm hard to work with. And basically, as you say, you moved out to LA. That's in 2000. This was already after a few years of shutting down yeah. non-appealing opportunities yes. on Broadway. So you come out in 2000, you get your degree, you're doing all these other things you just mentioned, and then a person you just mentioned, George C. Wolf, is sort of part of what brought you back to New yes. York. Yes, yes. I had been in L.A., and I was in a relationship, and I was getting out of the relationship, and I was moving back to L.A., and I was cast in the revival of Little Shop of Horrors, and I didn't want to play the plant. I had asked the universe for a different trajectory, mm -hmm. and I took the job anyway, because I thought, oh, well, this will get me back to New York and I'll have a paycheck. You know, it's about the money, 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 not actually what you should be focused on. Mm -hmm. You know, so I'm in the middle of it and I get fired. From Little Shop of Horrors. Before it comes to Broadway, we get fired. You know, the whole cast essentially gets fired. And I thought, wow, that's really interesting because God, the universe, whatever it is that you call it, you know, I asked for something very specific, but yet I was not making choices that would create a space for the universe to give me what I wanted. So basically, if you had actually ended up doing Little Shop of Horrors, it would have compromised this pledge that you had made already to yourself. Correct. I'm not doing this kind of thing anymore. Correct. So instead you come back with this residency at the Public Theater, which is where you first crossed paths with George C. Wolf. No, I had known you him had for known years. You known him before? I had known him for years, but at this point, he had finally cast me in something after 17 years of like trying to get in his room. Mm -hmm. So he cast me in the Keith Haring musical. I did that with him. And then, you know, he offered me a residency where I wrote my one-person show, Ghetto Superstar, mm -hmm. and I performed that, and I took it back to Pittsburgh. And then that was sort of the start of like this oh, he's not just a work-for-hire right. person. So let's just take a moment to just reorient any listener because it can all blur unless we say, so the last time you worked on Broadway was like 95, 99. 99, because I went back to Miss Saigon and played John Coming in the back year of in. 1999, okay. right before I left, because I did that part because right. it was a part. Right. Somebody had given a real, me a part. Right. A role. Right. So I did that for a year, and then I went to Los Angeles. Okay, so 99 is when you leave. 
And then it's not until 2013 with Kinky Boots. But let's just say that in those years, somebody's got to... Nobody, eat. somebody's got to eat. Somebody's got to put a <laughs> roof over your head. Um, yep. And that 13 year period, there were a lot of these artistically satisfying things that you've talked about that you were doing your own, you know, self-starting stuff. But there also were some personal lows. Yeah. How bad did it get? It got very bad. <laughs> Here's a story. I will tell, this is my favorite story. So I'm working with my hero, Stephen Sondheim. He's given us permission to create a musical review of his music with arrangements that sort of are from the black idioms of music. You know, it was all black cast. It was Leslie Odom Jr. from Hamilton, who won the Tony for Hamilton. One of my students, Patina Miller, who won the Tony Award for for Pippin. One of my students, Josh Henry. Carnegie Mellon. Carnegie I went Mellon. back to teach at one wow, point. Yeah. Josh Henry, one, his first or second job, he had, wow. he was just in Carousel on Broadway. Yeah. You know, like all the new young black kids were in my show. <laughs> right. And I went and I had this, I, I had a meeting with Sondheim at his house. That's cool. At 1230. Yeah. I went to my bankruptcy lawyer's office to sign the bankruptcy papers at 10. To then get on a train to go to Stephen Sondheim's house right. to work on a show. It kind of doesn't compute, right? It does. It's like. To also just, you know, lay it out there at, at a certain point. Maybe I'm wrong about this, but you've, you've used the word homelessness, not necessarily in the sense that you were out, as far as I know, like living no, under a box. No, 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 no. I need to make that clear. Yeah. When I say homeless, I mean, I did not have my name on a lease right. for 13 years or more. I couldn't get a lease. I didn't have my own space. I was either subletting in New York City mm-hmm. or packing my car to live with my best friends, Joe and Greg, in Pittsburgh. Mm-hmm. Like, when there were times when I couldn't be in New York, I would just get in my little bug my little blue bug that Rosie O'Donnell gave me (laughs) and pack it up and drive to Pittsburgh and be there for a month or two until I could find another sublet or there was another job that was taking me out of town that I was directing in Philly or, you know, whatever. So, yeah, I was just hopping around. I guess I should ask, Rosie O'Donnell gave you a car? Yes, Rosie O'Donnell gave me a car when I moved to Los Angeles in in, in, in 2000. She, nice. she, had, she had just started having kids right. and uh, she had purchased a, a Volkswagen Beetle a bug. Mm-hmm. And when I said I was moving to LA, she's like, well, I'm getting rid of this bug. You want my car? I said, yeah. So she shipped it to me friend, and I yeah. had that car for like 15 years. That's awesome. <laughs> so in that 13 year period where like highs and lows, it's like a roller coaster. Are you at any point saying to yourself, why am I putting myself through this? Why don't I, you know, I've got uh, MFA. I've got another graduate degree. I'm a highly educated, highly capable person. I shouldn't have to deal with this shit. Why don't I do something else and put myself out of my misery of this? That question was asked Mm -hmm. on several occasions to myself. (laughs) Right. And I went down the path of trying to figure out what that would look like Mm -hmm. for real. Mm -hmm. And there just simply was never a plan B. Mm -hmm. You know, it's like whatever it is, it's going to be connected creatively. Mm -hmm. It's going to be creative. Whatever it is, it's going to be creative. Whether I'm only behind the scenes, whether I'm just a writer, whether I'm a director, whether I'm a writer, director, teacher, whether I, you know, like it became less about fame and more about 
service. Mm -hmm. Like, it's naive. I want to be famous is a naive concept. It's about narcissism, mm -hmm. right? That's a part of the business, right? So I'm, I'm so I'm listening to Oprah. I'm watching Oprah, my girls, <laughs> you know, and Yon Levan Samp was on and Maya Angelou, you know, right. my black ladies. Right, right. And it, this was like 20 years ago and they were talking about service and I don't, it just stuck. It's like focus on service and the rest of it will figure itself out will work itself out. And I'm, and my question was, how am I of service? How can I be of service with the gifts I've been given in an industry that's inherently narcissistic? What does that mean? What does that look like? You know, and it hit me like a ton of bricks. It's your authenticity. You have to choose your authenticity. The very thing that everyone has told you from the beginning of your life, from the moment that you could comprehend thought, everything that you've been told. You must choose the opposite of that. You must. That's the only thing that's authentic. So here I am looking at this mountain and going, the only thing that anybody has ever said to me is that my black gayness is never gonna work. And y'all are saying, the universe is saying, God is saying, no, it, it, that's it though. You gotta be authentic, the real authentic. You know, you really have to be authentic for real because it's going to change lives. It's going to save souls. It's gonna turn the world around. You know, that's heady. That's really, really heady. You know, with great success comes great responsibility. That idea, like I really do take that to heart. I really do believe that. And in this moment, it's going, am I really that guy? Am I really that guy? Because what I see on the horizon doesn't look like there's anything for me. So to get over that, everybody, you know, depends on other people for a helping hand or whatever. Who are Susie Dietz and Lenny Beer? <laughs> so when I moved out here, a friend of mine connected me with this theater producer, Susie Dietz, and she was running the Cannon Theater, which is now like a hotel on... <laughs> on Rodale, not can on Canada. Right, right, right. It's like a big, right. fancy hotel now. And I had had this this black Sondheim review idea, and she loved it. And she sort of followed me around for a number of years because she really wanted to produce it. You know, we finally connected after like four years, and she sort of has become like a patron, I guess. Mm -hmm. She and her husband, Lenny Beer, is in the music industry. He's music manager, music. He he owns Hits Magazine, you know, the founder and owner of Hits Magazine. And, you know, they just have been a hugely powerful presence for me because they have, in a lot of ways, helped keep me afloat financially, which when you're an artist, you have to eat. You have to find a way. You know, I didn't need a whole lot, but I needed a place to live and I needed you know, money to pay some bills. You know, after bankruptcy, I didn't really have any more bills, but you know, like it was just, they were those people. And my, my manager of 28 years, who was an agent first, you know, he was my agent first. I've been with him for 29 years this year. And Should we drop a name? What's yeah, Bill Butler, Bill Butler is his yeah. name. And he, you know, he was also that person who looked at me and said, whatever it is that you're doing, I'm always here. Mm -hmm. I'm always here. Whatever it is that you're doing, whatever it is that you're trying to find, don't worry about it. This is a career. This mm -hmm. isn't just a moment. Right. You know, so yeah. So I guess 
to come back to an Oprah reference, she's big on these full circle moments, right? Mm-hmm. What could be more full circle than 2009, 2010-ish, here comes Angels in America again? You talk about the law of attraction, right? Yeah. People talk about that all the time. You speak into existence what you are. I did the artist way 20 years ago. I did it 10 years ago. They talk about that. They, they, you know, the whole concept is the language change, the tape in your head, the negativity, get it out of your head, even in the darkest times, find this space. And so in my time off, you know, I'm a little disgruntled, but I'm changing the tape. And I run into somebody on the street. They're like, you need to be back on Broadway. You did. I was like, uh, 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 I'm doing my own thing. And they're like, well, what would it take? And I said, nothing short of Angels in America. <laughs> they were like, oh, surprising. Because people only received me as a singer for a very long mm-hmm. time. So I was like, that's what I'm interested in. So you fast forward a few years later, I see on Playbill.com, the revival of Angels in America. Through a series of events, I won't bore you with the story, but... True to form, they wouldn't see me. They didn't really want to see me. You know, it was the last minute. You know, my agent gets a call. He's trying to get me in. The last minute, I get a call. They want to see you tomorrow. He's panicked because there's four scenes. My sweet manager, he's like, I tried to get it pushed. I was like, first of all, calm down. There's one role. There's one role in the canon of everything in existence that fits me, right? It's a 20-year-old play. If I don't already know this material, that's my fault. Mm-hmm. You can trust and believe I know every single word. <laughs> what are the scenes? Right, right. I go in the next day, and I know it's a courtesy audition. Open up my mouth. An hour later, Tony Kushner gets up from the table with tears in his eyes and gives me a bear hug and says, this is the voice I heard. You're oh. the voice I heard when I wrote this. Wow. 25 years ago. I was like, I know, queen. <laughs> That's what I've been trying to tell y'all. That's what I've been trying to tell you. Like, I'm like, yes, yes, yes. Right, right. Thank you, Jesus. Right. So I get this. So I get this. And in the middle of that, doing the first revival of Angels, not this one that just came right, from right, London, right. the first in 2010 right. at the Signature Theater. So then, and Zach Quinto was in it, and Adam Driver was in it, and you know, Adam Driver replaced Zach Quinto. It was, mm-hmm. a, it was a wonderful production. Kinky Boots. Well, yeah, so... You're literally in the middle of doing Angels in America when you hear about it. I mean, I can't imagine how someone would initially, you know, now we all know Kinky Boots. We know what it's about. We know it makes sense. It's great. But, like, how does somebody even bring the idea to your attention without sounding like, like, how was it presented to you? It wasn't presented to me. Yeah. I presented myself (laughs) to the people. But, I mean, even You know, because I was out of the mix. Right, right, right. They had already done a couple of readings with another person, with other people. And for listeners who maybe aren't able to be in New York or whatever, this is Harvey Firestein and Cyndi Lauper, musical essentially about a drag queen who, against all odds, saves a (laughs) shoe manufacturer. In in London. Yes. (laughs) And so, but that's what I mean when I'm saying, like, it sounds off the wall and it kind of is, but in the best way. And so you're hearing that it's in the works. Yes, and it was already a movie. So I had seen the first release of the film. Chiwetel. With Chiwetel Ejiofor. And I remember, once again, sitting in the theater and going, that's the part. (laughs) Mm -hmm. If I was in London, that's the part. You know, like, that's what I, that's what I know I do. And so it came around, Jerry Mitchell is an old friend of mine. He was the director. Mm -hmm. He is the director, Mm -hmm. choreographer. Mm -hmm. And so I just called him up on the phone and I was like, look, bitch, I know y'all think I've retired. 
and I did, right. but this is the part I want. Right. I was like, Belize is the part I want, and this is the part like that's those are that's the kind of stuff I want, y'all. Right. This is what I've been waiting for. So, you know, and so it was a very difficult, you know, climb to get to the part, to get the role and to get the offer, but I knew that it was mine. And when you got the call or were told in the room or whatever that that you actually had it and now you realize you're going back to Broadway after 13 years. What's that moment like? I just wanted to do it right. You know, I'm all about the work. It's like, I mean, it's a bit of a, it's a bit of an issue because I don't really, you know, I don't take a whole lot of time to like process process. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I don't, I'm, you know, I'm trying to get a little bit better, you know, because I'm always at, okay, what's the, how right. do I, how do I do this right, right now? Right, 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 right. How do I do this properly? How do I get in shape? I needed to lose 25 pounds. I was like, I'm, I need to be a leading lady. It's not a character <laughs> actress part. Right. You know what I mean? Like I, I got to learn this accent, this British accent, which I already know how to do, which is why I got the part anyway. Mm -hmm. But let me, you know, let me just, it was heady. Once again, it was like, this is the actual dream. This is the original dream that because I was able to release it and go, whatever the universe has for me is what's right, it was able to come back in the proper way on my terms. Mm -hmm. Like that was what's so powerful about it. And the thing about Kinky is that Miss Lola, as I call my alter ego, Miss mm -hmm. Lola, <laughs> you know, putting on the dresses and the wigs and the makeup and the pumps made me feel the most masculine that I have ever felt in my life because finally I was grounded in the totality of everything that I am without apology. All of a sudden, for me, my masculinity was no longer in question. Doesn't matter. Mm -hmm. I was able to release all of that old stuff and just be in that space that really changed me. You know, also too about forgiveness, you know, the relationship with Lola and her father in the play very much mirrors the one that I have with both of my fathers, my step, my, my stepfather and my biological father. And the process of healing those wounds is a practice. It's a daily practice. So to be able to go to work every day and practice forgiveness, your muscles don't know that it's fake. Mm -hmm. <laughs> yes, yeah, yeah. Your muscles don't know that it's fake. So all of a sudden you're like, I'm getting better. I'm getting better. I'm getting better. It was a beautiful, beautiful thing for me. It really did change everything. <laughs> it has changed everything. Well, we should just tell people you were in the show from 2013 to 2015 and then came back a bit in 2015 and then again in 2017, 2018. I think it's probably around a thousand performances collectively. Uh, probably about twelve hundred. Twelve hundred, yeah. Almost thirteen. But I guess if there was a one night in that time span that that might have been particularly special, it would be June 9th, twenty thirteen, when Sally Field and Matthew Broderick step <laughs> up to the podium at Radio City Music Hall. It's it's the night of the sixty seventh Tonys, which is well, what are we looking at? Like thirty three years after the one that got you into doing all this stuff mm -hmm. and they announced that the best actor in a musical Tony award goes to you. Yes. So it's going to be significant for anybody, but for somebody who had had the kind of trajectory that had 
led to that point. Again, first show in 13 years after all the crap that you'd had to deal with in and you know in the intervening period to have that happen, which was, you know, there were a lot of good shows that year too. Yeah. Yeah. So what what was that like? It just everything happened when it's supposed to. You know, it was like it couldn't have happened any other time but that. I wasn't ready. I had to get ready. You know, I had to be a stronger human being. I had to have lived a bit of a life so that I could imbue the character and fortify her with the with the grace and the strength that she slash he needed to have. You know, like, it's just everything. It was right at the right time. You know, the original dream circled back around and got me. You know, came back around and got me. I said it in my speech about, you know, Jerry Mitchell. He reached back and got me. He said, come on, girl. I got you. Come on. You know, like that. It's like it takes one person in a position of power to say yes. And that's at every level. Yeah. And it was in the midst of doing Kinky Boots that you then also hear again from George C. Wolf and end up doing Shuffle Along, yes. which I was lucky to see. You did? Of course. You were one of the of like 12 people that saw it. Well, I mean, that's it's it's crazy though when you think about it because you guys got a ton of Tony nominations. Yep. You had the probably the greatest living actress of musical theater leading your show, Audra, one of them certainly. And then it seems like what happened, correct me if any of this is wrong, is she's pregnant. She's got to take her leave. You're then going to have Rihanna and Giddens, who I think is terrific, but before she can even start, the plug is pulled, mm-hmm. and that was not expected or appreciated. I mean, that left a, it was a huge cast. This is, I, I guess, first let's just say for anyone listening, again, it's George C. Wolf. It's drawing upon a lot of different, I guess, would you say, aspects of black centric musical theater it was the the first black musical on broadway back in the 20s it was the first time that jazz was on broadway you know it was the hamilton of its day essentially Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. and what george c wolf and savion glover did was it became a it was like a docu musical on the making of shuffle along in that day and the at what cost element to we as African-American performers in America. You know, it's always at what cost, mm-hmm. right? We're these things, but at what cost? You, I can't vote, but I'm going to perform for you and you love me. I can't go to the same bathroom as you, but I'm headlined. I can't walk through the front door, but I'm, the, you know, like it's that story. It's the at what cost story. And so that was sort of, how it was set up. It was a gorgeous musical. Mm -hmm. It was beautifully, beautifully done. You know, me and Brian Stokes Mitchell, and it was lovely. Mm -hmm. It was the wrong time. It was just the wrong time. And that's all I'm going to say about it until I write about it in my book. (laughs) Because it was a lot of different things that it's too... But it was emotionally... From my my side of it, there are a lot of ideas that I have about it that I can't go into in a soundbite. Mm-hmm. Like, it has to be a couple of chapters right. in my book. You know, because there are there are things that I, went, that I think happened that could have 
should have not happened and we would still be open. The last thing I'll ask about that, though, is do you think it, if it had been given the opportunity to work with the replacement lead? No, it's not about her at all. It would have worked. It was not about her at all. Yeah. She would have been fine. Yeah. It wasn't about her at all. We'll come back and talk about that at One a day. whole When you're ready time. to promote your book. All right. Yes. <laughs> all of this leads us to Pose, mm-hmm. finally, which is fascinating. And I guess, again, let's just do the, the requisite. How did you first hear about it? <laughs> this is an interesting story because, you know, so there was the Tony Award and then there was me trying to break into film and television mm-hmm. again. Mm-hmm. And, you know, it's bullshit. It's just <laughs> bullshit. I'm going to just say it, you know. And it's like, you know, I'm the gay poster child. I get it. Every description of a character that I went in for for my whole life mm-hmm. starts with flamboyantly dot, dot, dot. <laughs> So if it don't have flamboyantly dot, dot, dot in front of it, yeah. I'm not even considered. I got it. It's fine. Whatever. So I go in for these TV shows. I put myself on tape. Flamboyantly dot, dot, dot. I do my thing. And then I get notes back or feedback back. No callback. Just dismissed. Too flamboyant. You can imagine how crazy making that is, mm-hmm, right? Mm-hmm. So I had had, I had, had it. Mm-hmm. I was in Huntington Theater. I was directing Top Dog Underdog. I was writing. I had won a Tony Award and a Grammy Award. You know, like, all of this stuff. And yet and still, every freaking audition that I was having for film and television was a dismissal, an outright dismissal. Too much, too flamboyant. I literally was driving pulled the car over to the side of the road, had a meltdown with my sister on the phone. Mm-hmm. Meltdown. I'm not doing this anymore. I'm sick of it. I can't do this. I'm just going to, you know, I'm just going to write. and You know, it makes me so much happier. I'm going to be a director. Ah! You know, like that thing. Mm-hmm. The next morning, <laughs> the next morning, I get the call for Pose. And I'm like, <laughs> I'm just looking at God. I'm like, whatever we call it. You know what I mean? I don't know what I believe anymore. But like some higher power, something, something, somewhere, something. What on earth? What in the Sam Hill? So I'm like, okay, all right, I see you. I Mm -hmm. see you, universe. I see you. Mm -hmm. And so then I get the script, and it's for the dance teacher. Because at that time, there was not even the part of an MC. There was no, the MC was in the script. He was called MC and he had five lines. So it was nothing. So there was no part. Right. Right. So, I, and, and the role of the dance teacher, who you will now see is a woman. Yes. That's Damon's dance teacher. Right. So now that I'm a Tony Award winner, yep. now that I'm in my mid 40s, mm-hmm. now that I have a Grammy and a Tony and people sort of respect me, I can speak up. Mm-hmm without being labeled difficult. <laughs> right. I could speak up. So I went, I did the audition as the dance teacher. And then I said to Alexa Fogel, who I love so much, I was like, okay, girl, listen. This is the casting director. Casting director, yeah. I said, okay, I just have to say this. I'm not trying to overstep any bounds, but like, I lived this. Mm-hmm. Like, I need to be in the world. Mm-hmm. What about one of the mothers of the houses of, or, you know, what, like what? And she said, well, Ryan wants to go transgender and I'm like oh my god that's amazing mm-hmm. amazing amazing but like they're gonna need some some male energy over there right like and she's like let me talk to him 
came back three weeks later and was like, yeah, Ryan thinks you're right. And if you can do, if you can do an imitation, like an impersonation, not an imitation, but like if you can get in the world and the spirit of, you know, the MCs from Paris is Burning, he'll do something, he'll write something for you. I was like, if I can do, like what? Is there a, like right. the whole world is doing an impersonation of, of Paris is Burning since 1990. And we should just say for, for anyone who isn't up to speed on Paris is Burning, this was a landmark documentary about the ballroom scene. It did not, I, I remember it was like, a, I remember being aware of the fact that it was like this huge shock that it didn't get an Oscar nomination even. It but should've. it certainly now is one of the ones that stood the test of time. But this is this was for most people the only window they had into the ballroom scene. Yes, yes, and that was it. That was all we had. And so when he came back, they gave me like twenty pages of declarations. <laughs> <laughs> the category is, you know, just declarations. <laughs> you know, there was no scene right. work because there was no, you know, and so <laughs> yesterday we did the Paley House event and yeah. I had done, you know, and I was talking and, you know, he, and Ryan said, and then he came in and I just said, talk. And he did that. <laughs> <laughs> well, now, so you had gone and watched or rewatch Paris is Burning to kind of get prep. I didn't need to you didn't need watch to. it. So the, I lived it. The main <laughs> MC uh-huh. in that, who I think is also the only principal person from the documentary who's still alive. Uh, there are a few. A few. Uh-huh. But that's Junior LaBeja. Uh-huh. Was he someone that you directly were, you know, consulted at any point? There are lots of consultants yeah. from the ballroom culture. Yeah. Jack Mizrahi is the, is the sort of lead MC point person for me because he comes up, you know, I mean, we all come up with a lot of the the reads, right. as we call it, a lot right. of the shade. Right. But, you know, they really have the shade down. You know, I take it and I sort of put it in my own mouth and then I can come up with some other stuff. But it's really, truly a collective. Is any of that actually improvised in yes. the moment? It is. Because yes. it feels yes, a lot so of it natural. That- a lot of it is. And, you know, I didn't know, you know, I don't consider myself an improv kind of like actor like that. But once it's in your body and you start going, you know, I start going and I... A lot of my own stuff made it in, (laughs) you know, so it was cool. That that was a really cool thing. Well, it's it's kind of ironic that, you know, you mentioned one of the parts that you could not even get in the door for, it sounds like, when you were having that kind of away period was the MC in Cabaret. Correct. If there's any relative of Pray Tell, it's probably... That guy, maybe Jig Young from They Shoot yeah. Horses, don't they? But like, <laughs> know, these are like, ends up, they end up being great parts because Correct. I guess in a way, they are the audience's surrogate in the room with where the craziness is going on. Yes. And simultaneously, the at what cost right. portion of the human being that so often is ignored. Right. They, everybody wants to see. Inside of who Praytel is outside, right. everybody wants to see. Yeah, that. we're waiting for as the ep, you know because the first couple episodes, there's it's not it's hinted at. We know yeah. he's like uh, on his day job, he's the Macy's uh, <laughs> cologne spritzer or whatever. But like the the thing that I think really, I'm guessing when when you get your 
Emmy nomination for this. Oh, you have sweet. to. Everybody has to submit a specific episode. Yes, they do. I would venture a guess to say that it would be episode six. Yes, it will be. And that is because, <laughs> just to remind, without really spoiling, I don't think anything Praytel's lover is in a hospital ward withering away like a lot of other people there with AIDS. Mm-hmm. And your character comes in there and gives the most emotional rendition of For All We Know. And I think that's like the moment of the season for you. Oh, do you thank you. Is that, do you have anything you would, as long as that's the episode that uh, voters will be focused on, why, you know, how was that for you to do? My talent and skill as an actor has always been in question to people who don't really know me. And I've spent a lot of time trying to change that perception. Ryan Murphy understood that and knew that. And everybody in the room, Stephen Canals and Janet Mock and Lady J, like everybody in the room knew exactly what my journey had been to get to this point. So they came together and said, we have to show the world the full range of what this man can do and what he is. I read that script and I was like, I have never, I mean, this is, this is it. This is the thing that I have been praying for for my whole entire life. This is it. So we shoot the episode and Ryan takes me to lunch and he says, okay, so just put it together. I just saw it. And I'm standing here to let you know that from this point on, you will never have to worry about anything again in your life. It's that kind of transformative performance. Mm-hmm. And for me, it's just, once again, I'm, I'm not, you know, I'm trying to lean into the, to this space, mm-hmm. lean into the joy, lean into all of it. And I was skeptical and I watched episode six like this. Right, right. And I can say without being too full of hubris, it's the best piece of work I've ever done in my life. Yeah, it's amazing. And I'm so blessed that the world gets to see it and see it forever. Right. Because that, that's the trade-off with theater, right? Yes. It's like I've, you know, I've been doing this kind of work in the theater for years, but if you weren't one of the that saw it in the hundred seat theater mm-hmm. off Broadway, you don't know. Right. You know, and so my favorite scene in episode six is the is the drunk scene. Mm-hmm. It's just one of those spaces where like I was so nervous. I had never played drunk before. You know, I knew what the tenants were to sort of like, as an actor, what you're supposed to to play, the action that you choose. You know, like I, but I just went in and just, it's my favorite. It's, <laughs> it's my favorite. It's amazing. And, it's, you know, for a listener, there's only eight episodes of the whole season. Yes. This is not a overwhelming, daunting time commitment. Like some yeah. 23 episode shows where like, this can and should be done in a pretty short we amount can. of time. Yeah. Let's pretend there's someone listening to this who hasn't yet seen the show. And we know that a large percentage of people out there maybe don't fully get the trans community yet, which the show deals with in a way that no other show ever has. You know, there's the various stigmas that have existed since the period chronicled in the show and long before that all these folks are mentally ill or the different questions like, you know, I've heard people say like, 
some of these folks can barely, in the, in the characters in the show, can barely make ends meet, and yet they're somehow spending money to have these outfits for the ballrooms. What is? How are they doing this? Why are they doing this? There's a lot of misinformation and bigotry and whatever that's out there. Why should someone who's skeptical take the time to see this show? And what did you learn as somebody who had not necessarily ever been around as many trans people before, learn from working up close with that many? I think what we, the power we have as artists is the space to transform hearts and minds, right? To reach into somebody's soul and go, see me on a basic emotional level, not on paper, not through your fear, but standing right in front of me, looking at me as a living, breathing person and hear my soul. That's what this show does. And it requires a human being on the other side of the dialogue. Mm -hmm. We're not speaking to people who don't want to be human beings. We're reaching out to the people who have a human instinct inside of them, period, the end. Mm -hmm. There's no need for acceptance. There's no need for tolerance. Those things are no longer of consequence to any of us. Mm -hmm. That's not the conversation we're having anymore. The conversation is we are human beings and we demand respect for our humanity that is just as valid as everybody else's on this planet. You don't have to understand me. I don't have to understand you, mm -hmm. but I will always respect you as a human being. And I demand the same. With that said, the show offers a space for those who want to be human to peer into something that they may not have known or understood and go, oh shit, these people are human. Right. Human beings, mm -hmm. not things on pieces of paper, not pictures of, you know. To scare people for voting one way or the other. You're going to have a. Trans bathrooms. Yeah, yeah, and, whatever. Yeah, yeah, yeah. It's like, that's not, that's not what any of this is about. Right. And I love that it presents these people choose life in the most horrific of circumstances. That's an example that the world should live by. We choose life anyway. We choose life. That's the first thing. Mm -hmm. The second thing is family. Mm -hmm. It's not a coincidence that people are calling you know, character's mother yes. or... It's a family right. show. Right. It's a family show. And everybody on the planet needs to understand that all families are valid. Mm -hmm. And they're all different. And they're all valid. And the same dynamics and the same kind of love and the same kind of support system comes in all different forms. That's what we get to do with this show. And it's gorgeous. Yep. No, I think it's... Uh, on one level, it's just a great show. On another yeah. level, it's making a... A difference, which yeah. not too many shows can say. But yeah. last question. We now know what the future of this show looks like because it's been picked up for a second season, yes. which is exciting. What does the future for Billy Porter look like? You know, this has sort of introduced you to a whole different group of people than yeah. ever <laughs> knew about or appreciated you from yeah. theater or other yeah. things. Yeah. You got probably m more attention on Oscar night than... <laughs> All the other days before that combined. Correct. So what do you make of it all? Where Where's this headed now? I'm, first of all, I have to say, I'm so glad that I'm almost 50. I'm 50 this year. I'm so glad it's happening now because 
I've been in this business for 30 years and I just feel like I'm ready. Right. I feel like I'm ready. You know, all the things that I asked the universe for 20 years ago are happening. You know, I'm directing a play this late summer uh, at the Huntington Theater, a new play by a new playwright that we're trying to get, you know, some eyes on. I wrote my second play called Untitled Sex Project, which is debuting off-Broadway. Our primary stages in New York is producing it. I'm starring in it this fall. You know, that's happening. I'm working on some new music. You know, maybe finally I'll be able to have some sort of like music career that's right. been very elusive <laughs> to me for the last 30 years. You know, I'd love to sort of be on somebody's right. chart. Right. I'd love to, you know, I'd love to do duet with Lady Gaga and right. John Legend. And, you know, like I sing like that. Right. I'd like to be able to have that. So I'm putting that out there. Right. I have a movie coming out with uh, Tiffany Haddish and Rose Byrne and Selma Hayek. A blockbuster comedy. What's it called? Well, it was called Limited Partners. In What's flux. it called? It's untitled now, and it's January now. Oh. <laughs> hey, it's always fluid. It's all okay. fluid. So it's not coming out in right. June anymore. It's coming out in January, and nobody knows what the right. title is. You see, but you it's have good. to we're be spreading it all out. You cover the whole calendar. It all out. You know, I'm working on. Ryan announced from the stage last night that I'll be directing an episode of Pose. That's so awesome. I can put that out into oh, the world. Awesome. I've been asking for that. Yeah. You know, I'm trying to run shit, baby. <laughs> I'm trying to run all the shit up Work, here in Hollywood. Right? You, gotta... <laughs> you know what I mean? Right. I love it. Well, it's a, it's a treat. I've been lucky to see a lot of your stuff in New York. And so to get to see more people get to appreciate you has been cool for me i'm sure it's thank a lot cooler you. for you thank you it's uh, very cool and i appreciate you doing this so thanks a lot thanks for having me thanks very much for tuning in to awards chatter we really appreciate you taking the time to do that and would really appreciate you taking a minute more to subscribe to our podcast for free on itunes or your podcast app and to leave us a rating as well if you have any questions, comments, or concerns, you can reach me via Twitter at twitter.com slash Scott Feinberg. And you can follow all of my coverage between episodes at thr.com slash the race. Until next time, thanks for joining us. Hello, it is Ryan, and I was on a flight the other day playing one of my favorite social spin slot games on chumbacasino.com. I looked over the person sitting next to me, and you know what they were doing? They were also playing Chumba Casino. Coincidence? I think not. Everybody's loving having fun with it. Chumba Casino is home to hundreds of casino style games that you can play for free anytime, anywhere, even at 30,000 feet. So sign up now at chumbacasino.com to claim your free welcome bonus. That's chumbacasino.com and live the Chumba life. No purchase necessary. DTW, avoid, we're prohibited by law. See terms and conditions 18 plus.